One day, Martin Luther went to see his barber for a haircut. And if you don't know who Martin Luther was, he was a preacher of the gospel in the 1500s, leader of the Protestant Reformation in Germany. And at that time, uh, choosing a barber was very, very important for Martin Luther because uh, you see by about 1535 when this story happened, Luther was an outlaw. Uh, He had a bounty on his head. So anybody could kill him and get a prize, get some money for it. And you know when you go to see a barber back then, they would give you a shave and they would use a knife to shave you. And so a barber sticking a a sharp blade up to your neck, your jugular, uh, was pretty risky when you're Martin Luther and you have a bounty on your head. So he, he had a great trust in his barber named Peter. And one day he went to his good friend Peter uh, for a haircut and a shave, and Peter was really struggling. He was struggling with how to pray. So they had a little conversation, but Luther went home and he wrote a book. He wrote an entire book called A Simple Way to Pray, just for his barber, Peter, to teach him how to pray. And he gave him several pieces of advice about how to pray when you're struggling to pray. Uh, One of his pieces of advice was to um, read the Psalms. And so we're doing that today. He said, go read the Psalms and warm your heart. And if you can, you should even sing the Psalms. And here's another thing that he said. He said that if you're struggling to pray, you should take the Lord's Prayer. And you should take each line of the Lord's Prayer and uh, kind of expand on it. Just start to pray based on that line. And then just go line by line through the prayer. So you take a line like, Hallowed be thy name, which means may your name be holy. And then you start to pray. Lord, I pray that... Your name would be holy in my life. I pray for my family. I pray for these people in this nation, that they would uh, see your name as holy, that they would glorify your name. And So you, you do that through each line of the Lord's Prayer. And I bring up Luther's advice uh, today because today this psalm is not only a psalm, which Luther tells us uh, we should read, but it is also essentially praying the prayer, thy kingdom come. It's as if David is taking Luther's advice and he's taking the prayer of Jesus that Jesus tells us to pray to God, may God's kingdom come. And that's what he's expounding on, developing in this psalm. What does it look like for God's kingdom to come? The psalm tells us that God is the king. He is on the throne. He is going to judge all the nations. And David is longing for that day to come. David is praying for that day to come when God's justice will arrive. When we pray, thy kingdom come, that's what we're praying. That God's justice would finally be done. We can think about this as as Christians, that this is how we are supposed to pray. Think about the book of Revelation. That's what the whole book is all about. Thy kingdom come. Revelation was not written to be a 
uh, Bible code to crack to figure out everything that's going to happen in the future and um, whether face masks are the mark of the beast. That's not the point of the book of Revelation. The point of Revelation is to comfort suffering people of God, to show us that God's justice is going to come one day. The people are being persecuted by the Roman Empire, and they are calling out, Lord Jesus, please come back and establish your kingdom. And I wonder if our sometimes lack of praying for God's kingdom to come is because we're not suffering the way that the people were at the time of Revelation, the the first century Christians. Uh, We are not getting beheaded. We are not getting locked up for being Christians. We aren't getting kicked out of our houses by our parents for becoming Christians. And so maybe this psalm is a challenge to you. Maybe it's, yes, it's, it's here to give us hope, but it's also here to challenge us. If you are not praying and looking forward to God's justice, Maybe your life is too easy. Maybe you're not suffering for Christ enough. And so this is what this psalm is challenging and encouraging us about. So as David prays, thy kingdom come, essentially, uh, we see the psalm in two parts. First, he praises God for his justice in the first 12 verses. And then, second, he prays that God will bring his justice in the second half, verses 13 to 20. So he praises God for justice, and then he prays for justice. So let's start looking at this first part of the psalm, where he prays. The psalm starts out, actually, with the first two verses, David giving thanks He says, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. Notice how he is giving thanks. It's it's pretty convicting. He gives thanks with his whole heart. Uh, Giving thanks is more than celebrating Thanksgiving on the fourth Thursday of November and eating turkey. And giving thanks is more than praying before your meal, God, thank you for my food. But giving thanks is all of life, all of our heart given to God because we know what he has done for us. When you realize how much you have received that you do not deserve, you will praise God, thank him with your whole heart. And as David says in verse 2, it will lead to you being glad and exulting, exulting is uh, using your words to uh, praise God. And then the next part of the verse 2 says, I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. Christians sing. Christians sing loudly and with all their hearts because they are thankful people. A lot of times people, when they are going to church, all of us when we come to church, and especially new people looking for a church, They always say they want good worship. Of course, everybody wants good worship, but a lot of people's idea of good worship is very worldly. 
And what does the Bible say about good worship? The Bible doesn't say much about style or performance or instruments. The Bible says that good worship is from our mouths. We sing praise with our mouths and we sing praise out of thankful hearts. The New Testament, when it talks about singing in Colossians 3.16, and then you can also see a similar passage in Ephesians 5, Colossians 3.16 says, Sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. He doesn't tell us what instruments to use. He doesn't tell us what style to use. He tells us to sing songs and to sing them with thankful hearts. And so if you feel... Okay. If you feel like worship for you is not good worship, the first thing you should do is check your heart. Are you uh, exploding with like this microphone? Can I just turn it off? All right. Well, we'll move on. Uh, So give thanks with your whole heart. So, How do you grow in giving thanks? Well, David says in verse 1, I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. That's what makes David thankful. He recounts God's wonderful deeds. Uh, He's not just saying, well, God, I look back at my life and I know all the good things that you have done for me. But specifically, In the Psalms especially, when it talks about God's wonderful deeds, it's talking about God's works of salvation. Uh, So in Psalm 106, you can read that later, he says, I'm going to recount all your wonderful deeds. And then he tells the whole story of the Exodus and God bringing Israel out of the Exodus. This was God's salvation of the people of Israel. And so for us, if you want to grow in thankfulness, if you are not giving thanks and praising with your whole heart, You need to recount God's wonderful deeds in your life, God's salvation through Jesus Christ. Uh, What causes us to be thankful is the work of the gospel through Jesus. Uh, John Owen says, keep your heart full of a sense of the love of God in Christ with the eternal design of his grace With the blood of Christ, his love in shedding it. Get a relish of the privileges we have by it. Adoption, justification, acceptance with God. Fill the heart with thoughts of the beauty of his holiness. Do that and you will be more thankful and you will sing with all your heart. Well, David thanks God for, for, the, for the gospel, that God's salvation, but then he praises God for his justice. And so that's what he goes on to in verses 3 to 6. When my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before your presence. For you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne giving righteous judgment. You have rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked perish. You have blotted out their name forever and ever the enemy came to an end in everlasting ruins their cities you rooted out the very memory of them has perished but the lord 
sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice. And he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the people with uprightness. And David here is talking about the future. We know he's talking about the future because, like in verse 5, he says, the wicked have perished and they've been blotted out forever. There are, there are no wicked people around anymore. Verse 6, the enemy comes to an end in everlasting ruins. So this isn't David just saying, you know, way back in the day, I fought against some people and that little army is wiped out. No, he's saying there are no enemies anymore. But the way he talks about it is in the past. You see that in verse 5, verse 6? It's in the past. You have rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked perish. You have blotted out their name. So why is it future if he's talking about in the past? Well, because this is sometimes the way that the prophets would write. They would prophesy about something in the future, but they would use the past tense. And the point that they were making is that they were so sure of God doing this that it's as if you can talk about it happening already. It's already been done because God decided it's going to be done. And so this is what David says God is definitely going to do. He's going to completely judge the wicked. You know, when people say, only God can judge me, they are usually using that as an excuse. They can do whatever they want. Only God's going to judge me. You can't judge me. Well, if you read these verses, you don't want God to judge you. God judging you means that the name is going to be blotted out forever and ever. You are going to perish. You're going to come to an end. Uh, this idea of blotting out, right, is, is talking about ink. Picture uh, your name written with ink on a piece of paper and then somebody coming and pouring a bunch of ink onto the paper. And you can't even tell that your name was ever written down. It's as if you don't exist anymore because your name is no longer there. I guess in our day we could think about tattoos. I once heard a long time ago, Johnny Depp had a tattoo of his wife's name. And then he got divorced. And so he had to blot out his wife's name. He, he didn't want to think about her. So he just got it covered over in ink. So that's a good example of what it means for your name to be blotted out. Apparently, uh, Jews today even still say this about Hitler. They have a phrase every time they say the name of Hitler. They say, may his name be blotted out forever. It's a curse. And this is what God does when he judges the wicked. And these verses are saying that God does this for everybody. For the wicked, the nations in, in verse 5, verse 8, for the world, for the peoples, all of us are faced with this judgment of our, of our names being blotted out. So you don't want God to judge you. That's why the New Testament says, judge yourself first. 1 Corinthians 11 says, judge yourself so that you will not be judged by the Lord. 
Look at your life and look at the mirror of God's word and realize your sin and how you're going to face God's judgment and then do something about it. And so when we repent, we go to God, we we recognize his judgment and go to him, we find salvation. This is what verses 9 and 12 say. As he praises God for his justice towards the wicked, now he says, starting in verse 9, the Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell among the peoples his deeds. For he who avenges blood is mindful of them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. Those who go to God find a stronghold. A stronghold is a place that if you are fighting a battle, you will fortify, you will build it up, make it really safe. It's like uh, your base that you want to go to. If you're losing the battle, then you might retreat and go back to your stronghold. It'll give you time to recover. It's supposed to be impenetrable. And if the enemy breaks into your stronghold, that pretty much means that you're going to lose the war. You don't really have a chance. A stronghold is the place of safety. And the godly, the, the oppressed, those who are in need, they run to God for safety. Now what's amazing about the gospel is that the danger is God's judgment. And yet, verse 9 also tells us that the salvation is in God. God is the judge and he is the stronghold. God has made a way for him to judge sin and for us to be saved. And that way has been made through Jesus Christ. This is what Jesus was doing on the cross. He was taking the judgment for sin on himself, paying for the sins of those who would believe in him and trust in him so that we can find a stronghold and not face God's judgment and yet God can be just and judge our sins by putting them on Jesus. And so verse 10 says, those who know the Lord, they put their trust in him. We put our faith in Jesus Christ. We turn away from living for ourselves and we live for Christ and follow him and we find God as a stronghold. And so, as verse 11 and 12 say, then we praise God for his justice and for his salvation. So we praise God that he is, his kingdom is coming. We praise God for his justice. We praise God that he is a stronghold for us and that the enemies are judged. But next, the story changes a little bit. Next, in this second section, starting in verse 13, we have a prayer for justice. David moves out of praise mode, and he goes into prayer mode. So look at verses 13 and 14. He says, Be gracious to me, O Lord. 
See my affliction from those who hate me, O you who lift me up from the gates of death, that I may recount all your praises, that in the gates of the daughter of Zion I may rejoice in your salvation. So you see how he goes from this great, like, yes, I'm going to praise God. He's so wonderful. He's such a stronghold to me. And then he's like, oh, wait, I have all these enemies around me. I'm being afflicted by people who hate me. And a lot of times this is what life is like. You come to church on Sunday you get to worship God. You get to be with brothers and sisters and encouraging. Uh, you get to hear his word. And it's like for an hour or two, it's like all the clouds of life can sort of go away. You can forget about the problems and all that's messed up in the world. But then you go home. And you go home and now you have to deal with the tree that fell on your fence last night and you have to talk to your neighbor and you go home and you look on social media and somebody posts something that makes you mad and and you see all you're reminded of all the problems in the world and you go home and you get in a fight with your family well that's the reality of life that's what david's experiencing and so we still need to pray uh, suffering isn't over yet so we call out to God. So David makes this prayer request, and then he goes back to what he said before. Verses 15 and 16, uh, he talks about the nations being judged again. He calls upon God as a judge again to answer his prayer. So you see what he's doing. I'm praising God because I know he's a just God. And now here's this situation in my life, and I need to pray about it. But I'm going to pray based on who I have already said God is. I know this about God, and so I'm going to pray based on it. Jesus says in John 16, 23, Whatever you ask in my name, he, my Father will give it to you. And a lot of times we take that as saying, whatever you ask, my Father will give to you. Well, doesn't Jesus promise that God's going to answer our prayer? Well, that's not what Jesus said. He says, whatever you ask in my name, he will give it to you. And that doesn't mean saying at the end of your prayer, I pray this in Jesus' name. It means you're praying according to, to who God is. His name represents who he is. It represents his character. So your prayers should be based on the character of God. That's what David's doing. Because you are a just God, I'm going to pray based on your judgments. God does not promise to answer every selfish desire that you pray for. He says that he will give you the prayers made according to his character. And so you can pray based on his mercy, based on his justice, based on his wisdom, based on the fact that he knows everything and he is sovereign, and then you can trust that he will answer. So David prays, and then he ends his prayer request with anticipation that God will do something. 
So he says in verses 17 to 20, The wicked shall return to Sheol, all the nations that forget God. For the needy shall not always be forgotten, and the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. Arise, O Lord, let not man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are but men. And so he's looking forward. You see in verse 19. Arise, O Lord. Get up and do something about this. He's calling on God as the warrior. Uh, This is what they would say when they would go out to battle. Arise. And he's calling on God to get on his war horse and to come and fight against the enemy. So we have the future again. But he's confident that God is going to do this. So he praises God. He prays to God based on his character. And based on that prayer, he knows that God is going to accomplish his purpose. He knows the nations will be judged. He knows man will not prevail. So we know that God is just. We know, Revelation 19 tells us, that our king on the throne is Jesus. And we know that Revelation 19 says Jesus is going to come back on his war horse. He has conquered Satan by his resurrection. But his kingdom has not fully come on earth. Verse 17 is still true. The nations forget God. And verse 18 is true, that there are needy people and there are poor and oppressed people, but Jesus is coming. And the Bible says he's coming with a robe dipped in blood, with eyes like flames of fire, with a sword coming out of his mouth, and he will strike down the nations and rule the nations with a rod of iron. David is praying for Jesus to return and establish his kingdom. And when we pray, thy kingdom come. That's what we're praying for too. We're praying for the persecuted church, for those who are getting beheaded for following Jesus and locked up in prison. We're praying that Jesus will come and put a stop to it. We're praying for the poor and oppressed who are suffering and need, that Jesus will return and wipe away every tear from our eyes. And we have confidence that those prayers will be answered. We have confidence that God is just because of the promise that Jesus is coming. So may his kingdom come on earth. Let's pray. Our God, we do praise you that you are a great God. That you are the God who knows all and sees all. We praise you that you are good. And because you are good, you will judge every wrong. Lord, we pray that you would help us to look to the future and the coming kingdom. uh, As we suffer, as your people are oppressed in this world. 
Uh, Lord, we pray for Christ to return. We look forward to the day when he will make all things new. And we ask, Lord, that you would help us to continue to look to you in faith. Look to you to be our stronghold. And so we pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's conclude by uh, standing.